Hello, this is Dr. Gary Sherman, the Heart Guy, and I welcome you to our exciting and informative podcast titled The Heart Guy Presents the Heart of the Matter, bringing you interesting discussions and conversations related to the vast and important subject of heart disease and heart failure and organ donation and everything related to that in today's ever-changing world. I'm extremely honored to have as my special guest today a most inspiring contributor to our global heart health community, Dr. Jeremiah Hayanga. Dr. Hayanga is a professor in cardiothoracic surgery at West Virginia University School of Medicine. He is the director of the West Virginia University Heart and Vascular Institute ECMO program. Dr. Hayanga is board certified in cardiothoracic surgery, general surgery, and surgical critical care. He completed his general surgical training at Johns Hopkins University and the University of Michigan, followed by cardiothoracic and transplant training at the University of Washington and University of Pittsburgh, respectively. Dr. Hayanga has served as an Alfred Somer Scholar during his Master's in Public Health training at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. He is also a 2008 World Health Organization Patient Safety Scholar, a Department of Health and Human Services Fellow, and Senior Medical Advisor to the Deputy Secretary in Washington, D.C. Dr. Hayanga holds a Master's Degree in Healthcare Leadership from Brown University, and a Certificate in Artificial Intelligence and Business Strategy from MIT. He is an expert health policy panelist with RAND Corporation, elected member of the American Association of Thoracic Surgery, and editorial board member for Journal of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery, the Journal of Heart and Lung Transplant and Lung. He has authored over 150 peer-reviewed papers, and his clinical work and research focuses on ECMO, transplantation, and application of data analytics in prevention, diagnosis, and mitigation of end-stage cardiopulmonary disease. He's a fellow of the American College of Surgeons, the Royal College of Surgeons, and American College of Chess Physicians. Oh my, Dr. Ayanga, it's my great privilege to welcome you to the heart of the matter. Oh, Gary, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. <laughs> I, I, and you're and you're still not tired after doing all that work. That's oh my goodness, not at all. No, no, not at all. This is um, this is this is a, a true privilege because of all the wonderful work that you've done and this, the podcast that reaches so wide an audience in terms of uh, dealing with difficult clinical issues, navigating difficult health issues, and making this accessible to an audience in a means that they can understand and really be part of of what you have been through and what they may go through. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I really appreciate your, your comments about that, but it's really been my pleasure and an amazing journey for me to, to meet people such as you and to help inform uh, our listeners about all of these complex issues. So I'll, I'll keep doing it. I'll keep at it. <laughs> Please do. So I thought I'd start at the beginning. Uh, where did you grow up and when did you know that you were going to become a doctor? Thank you. I, um, I grew up in Kenya. I was born in Nairobi, Kenya, and I went to school there, lived there. And I think it was an idea that was inserted into my subconscious by my parents to become a doctor, because I don't remember when this decision was made. I just don't remember anything else but wishing, wanting to become a doctor. Yeah. And that's funny that you say that. I, I grew up with a certain uh, sort of culture, if you will. I told my mother I wanted to be a comedy writer. And she said, well, first become a doctor, then you can do whatever. <laughs> my parents said something very similar. <laughs> you have some, something to fall back on. 
<laughs> exactly. Always have that. So to dive right in, it is safe to say that you treat the very sickest COVID-19 patients in West Virginia area. And the thing that most people are probably still not aware of is that uh, the patients being placed on life support now, with the help of ECMO, are trending younger. Can you discuss how and why that's happening? You know, Gary, this is a this is a true fact that the patients we see are getting younger. And this is different from what we witnessed in 2020, when it was mainly the patients who are over 60 who are succumbing to the virus. I think this is part of the invincibility of being between ages 25 and 39. The vaccine hesitancy we're seeing is somewhat callous in its etiology, so to speak, because we interview patients who are just not interested in getting the vaccine. Many of them have a deep-seated resistance to being told what to do. They have a sense of their own agency. They're unwilling to follow mandates. But some others just feel that they don't need it, that, they, that even if they got sick, it wouldn't be severe enough to take them down. And as such, this age group is falling to the Delta variant in large proportions. Yeah, that is so interesting. And, and it's kind of understandable, I guess, uh, because when we are young, you know, we feel invincible. I, I remember being young and, and not even thinking of the possibility of illness. Uh, you know, people used to say, uh, as long as you have your health, that's all you need. I never understood that as a young person. You so know? so I think that's just the mental state of many young so people. So true. So as you now know, I think we discussed this a little bit before uh, when we were introducing each other to each other. I was on ECMO for several weeks as I went through my journey back in January 2019 in hopes of receiving a heart at that time, concluding with my LVAD surgery. Can you explain to our listeners who may not know what ECMO is and what its role is from your perspective in the life-saving process at your hospital, particularly during the pandemic. Absolutely. And ECMO, as you know, is used when conventional therapy has failed in the management of patients whose heart and lung function has become so jeopardized that it requires more than just a ventilator and infusions of medicine to keep the heart going and to keep the lungs working. And it is these patients that are the candidates for ECMO where we can insert cannulas. And these are tubes that are placed in the veins and arteries to drain the blood, pump oxygen into it, and then place it back either into a vein or an artery, depending on whether it is lung or heart support that is required. And when it is lung support, we return the oxygenated blood to a vein, which the normal heart can then pump around. But when the heart is the one that is affected, then we help the heart by bringing that oxygenated blood back into the arterial system. Yeah. I wanted to point out, which was interesting, and certainly even from my experience, and while that ECMO machine is certainly very large and uh, intimidating looking, I was able to be awake the entire time while I was on it. And while physically I was certainly limited, there were certain things I could do and I could understand and communicate with everybody that was coming in and out of the room. So I think ECMO, uh, even physically, has come a long way. It certainly has. And we put a high premium on having the awake patient because the awake patient is a rehabilitating patient. The awake patient is breathing, using their muscles of the chest, using the muscle of the diaphragm. That in itself 
prevents the illness that is compounded by a prolonged period of sedation and paralysis that often accompanies these ECMO runs. And an awake patient can interact and has a greater concept of their recovery and their role in that recovery. Right. Yeah, and that's so interesting. Uh, One of the other things that I say many times in my speaking engagements when I have the opportunity is that line that is actually printed on a lot of the forms when you leave the hospital after an emergency stay or a longer stay that nobody seems to read. If they do read it, they don't pay much attention to it. And what it says is you are the most important part of your recovery. Absolutely. I think that's something that we have to learn as patients is that the doctors and nurses are doing the best they can for us. But once we leave, we really have to depend upon ourselves to heal. Very true. Yeah. So with many people not getting vaccinated for a variety of reasons, is it reasonable to think that these numbers will ever decline, at least in the foreseeable future? You know, that's a question that we always ask ourselves. And I think historically, when we look at the pandemic of 1918, we begin to understand that, you know, herd immunity can come in a number of ways. It can come through vaccines and It can also come through infections. But ultimately, when enough of the population has been exposed to this virus by one of those two mechanisms, then we will cross the threshold that would allow normalcy or something that is near normalcy to return. So the natural history of epidemics is that they don't last forever. Yeah, and hopefully that'll be the case. And I think that is the case so far. So all the people that worry, hopefully we'll do the right thing and try and contribute towards making this virus go away as quietly as it, as we can ha- have it do that. As an expert in health policy and health and special advisor to the United States Department of Human Services, what are the steps that the government can begin to take at the federal and state levels to help turn the direction of COVID-related illness around? You know, very specific to pandemics, there is a common belief that one of the medications that is most important in a pandemic, one of the therapies that is most important during a pandemic is communication. And so the value and, and really the importance of communication cannot be overstated. Honest communication and communication that allows for the dissemination of information without a sense of panic, which demonstrates resolve and a commitment to public health is very important. I think that's probably one of the most important roles that the government can play in a situation such as this, where there is a need to convey fact in a calm and a productive forum. You know, there are technical things that are required of the government that would include approval of of vaccines, approval of medications, attention paid to the process so that these drugs that are in production or or in in the research pipeline can be moved quickly to the public. The ability to determine when mandates are necessary, understanding that people fatigue very quickly of being told what to do without explanation, Uh, a sense of persuasion that takes into consideration what people fear, what people think, and what people need is, is I think, one of the ways that the government can really help. Yeah. I had an experience last year during the pandemic, interestingly enough, when my speaking engagements uh, were interrupted because gatherings could not happen anymore. 
and I worked as a supervisor for New York State contact tracing for COVID-19. And the biggest challenge for me as a supervisor was basically teaching my teams of contact tracers to be able to de-escalate, if you will, the people that they had to call and inform that they had been contacted by this virus. And the fact that it was more complicated by the fact that we were not allowed to tell those contacts who they got it from, you know, because the HIPAA laws and such, and all the confusing messaging that was coming through did not help that process. So that, that was the biggest challenge in trying to get people to quarantine and move that mountain, which we actually did quite well, uh, especially in Long Island here in New York. We did a great job of changing the numbers, but that was a challenge because people were so confused in the messaging and people are on edge when they're unsure of what, what it is that they should do. So true. So true. And, yeah. you know, if when people don't know, they tend to default to fear. And then that yeah. starts a cycle of miscommunication and more fear. Yeah, exactly. It, I was going to say in the world of heart transplantation, which obviously I'm presently involved with on a number of levels, as someone who's waiting for the gift of a new heart, I've learned that first attempts are being made to use artificial intelligence in placing patients on the waiting list and even in the selection process of matching donors and recipients. How do you see the role of artificial intelligence in mitigating a worse outbreak of the new COVID-19 variant? That's a great question. I think that the artificial intelligence platforms can be used to better synchronize a platform of interoperability within our data, such that we would be able to use governmental data from Medicare with other data inputs from the CDC and or the HHS, in which we would be able to identify early pockets within the population that were at risk, and then correlate that with pockets of populations where the virus was performing or the numbers were increasing in a manner that was out of sync with prediction, so that we could use our data intelligently to predict where FEMA would need to go to assist in vaccine delivery, where the CDC would need to attend to issues with vaccine hesitancy, and where the HHS would deliver resources uh, that you know come in the way of actual hard cash through the CARES Act, or how to distribute resources based on need from a rural, urban perspective, and or just physical vulnerability from the epidemiology of different counties within the United States. Yeah, I think that that's interesting because it, it, it mirrors so much what I, again, what I had experienced with the, the COVID-19 initiative in the sense that things were not happening uniformly. There were small pockets where the numbers were going up and we had to attend to those particular pockets. It wasn't, it wasn't everybody across the board that was necessarily gathering to cause the numbers to go up. So I understand that. that it's quite a thing to see. Absolutely. And, you know, on the, in the same vein, there were very early in the pandemic signs that specific populations were going to be more vulnerable in the yeah. context of the illness. And, you know, the ability to respond early or to have a plan mitigation is very important. Yeah. And then to that, and just to augment that thought, in uh, in areas where there the populations of color exist and 
uh, and so forth, and other populations, other vulnerable populations. Uh, coronavirus exposes just how profoundly healthcare access and health outcomes are linked with employment and income, and it seems to me to be a crisis within a crisis. I, I think you're absolutely right, and, and you, you describe it well. A crisis within a crisis is true because what we found is that the coronavirus has deepened the divisions in socioeconomic, hierarchical, and segmentary fashion. Because where the equities existed, they seem to have been exacerbated. And the distribution of resources to mitigate this cannot make sense if the previous historical structures aren't taken into consideration because some areas need more help than others. And not just resources, but communication and information because there are some communities now that have a 70% vaccine uptake. And there are other areas that have a 25% vaccine uptake. So if you want to spend resources in informing the community about the importance of vaccines, there are some communities that need more of that than others. Mm-hmm. And in some, you'd be wasting your time. And in others, you need to spend a lot more, which is it doesn't matter. How do we begin to mitigate further harm for people in those more vulnerable pop- populations? And has that been done satisfactorily yet to any degree? That's a great question. I think that it depends on where you look because it is now quite clear when you look at the map that the states with the 10 lowest vaccination rates are seeing the highest number of new infections. So within the union, there are states that need more attention paid to this vaccine effort. So Alabama, Mississippi, Wyoming, Idaho, Louisiana, Arkansas, West Virginia, Georgia, Tennessee, North Dakota need more impetus placed on vaccination than those 10 states that have had over 70% of their populations already having received the first vaccine. Mm -hmm. And so it really is necessary to take an approach that takes into consideration the context that one is dealing with in order to achieve the desired result. And a lot of thought has to go into looking at some of the southern and rural states to figure out what are the reasons that people hold against vaccination. And in order to make it a more persuasive movement, one must take these into consideration and try to answer these questions, these fears, in a satisfactory fashion to allow people to cross that line. So so interesting. And then again, it's something that we, we will see how it unfolds and hopefully everybody will do their, do their part to try and solve the problem, particularly for these vulnerable populations. If I could shift gears as we regretfully conclude our discussion, how do you think the COVID-19 pandemic will affect those people like myself who have or will be receiving organ transplants in the face of being immunosuppressed? Um, will we be able to carry on as normal a fashion as other people? Absolutely. And it is necessary that we take these considerations uh, into the, the, the calculus of decision making. You know, earlier this week, the FDA uh, pushed to have a booster vaccine 
for anyone who is immunosuppressed or immunocompromised, which I think is a very thoughtful move uh, because it is necessary to make sure that these antibodies remain viable uh, throughout the duration of the epidemic. Now, as we continue with a large population of unvaccinated citizens, we will find that there will be more and more variants. And so we have to pay attention to those who are more susceptible or vulnerable to the virus, such as our transplant population. But also, this is also going to create a situation whereby there will be organ donation in the context of the virus. And so where we have demonstrated that the virus has come and gone and the patient is non-infectious, are we going to now consider the options for post-COVID donation more seriously? Are we going to take into consideration the options for transplantation for COVID-related fibrosis of the lungs, for example? We have to continually reevaluate what the options are against the context of this pandemic and not be caught stagnant waiting for the pandemic to end without mitigating the extra risk that the transplant recipients bear or looking at any opportunities that we can for expanding the donor pool. Yeah, it's so interesting. I want to leave it up to you as we finish. Are there any other messages that you would like to leave our listeners with who are both providers and patients, by the way, in the heart health and organ transplant global communities? I'm very proud of the listenership that I have on this podcast, and uh, I want to leave it to you to finish up. Uh, any, Any final thoughts that you'd like to share? Well, Dr. Sherman, I'm really grateful to have been invited to this podcast, and really, I want to congratulate you on all you've done to expand the readership in this really complex field. Transplant is not very easy to explain to people. And it, it, re, it really requires a forum that allows people to, to connect uh, in, in a meaningful way. And I think this really does that. You know, my preoccupation right now is to try and convince the people around me that vaccination is important. And some of it is objective, some of it is subjective. Looking at the numbers, the highest number of of infections that we're seeing are in states that have the lowest vaccination rate. That's objective. Subjectively, trying to address the reasons why there is vaccine hesitancy, that's more complex, takes a longer period of time, and is perhaps the more persuasive of the two, where you have reached a plateau in vaccination rates. If there was one message, therefore, that I would have is that people should get vaccinated. And if they don't want to get vaccinated, they should talk to uh, as many uh, different voices and, and authorities and, and friends uh, from different sides of the divide to try and get the answers to their questions and to try to get some resolution to their fears. Yeah, yeah and thank you for that message. Uh... We, we will try and keep spreading the word about getting people vaccinated uh, so that they can help themselves and others. It's been such an honor to have you as a guest on The Heart of the Matter. On behalf of myself and our listeners, I thank you so much for all you've done in your local community in Virginia and everyone else across the country and in the global community with your extraordinary contribution and, co- and accomplishments and with your incredible dedication to all the work that you do for all of us. And and I especially want to thank you for sharing this time with me. 
I hope that we can get this done again soon, perhaps after I receive my new heart. That's incredible, Dr. Sherman. I wish you the very best of luck. And I hope that the next time we speak, you will have a brand new heart. Yeah. Either way, we're going to do this again. But I think it's going to work out this time. A third time's a charm, I think, for me. So Fantastic. Uh, I think that'll be okay. So thank you again. Thank you again. And thank you for having me. Uh, my pleasure. So that is our podcast for today. Please join me next time for another intriguing, informative, and entertaining conversation. Please visit our website at theheartguyspeaks.com for all the upcoming podcasts. Or if you'd like me to host an online presentation for your group or organization, all you have to do is email me. Uh, say theheartguyspeaks at gmail.com. And also, if you'd like to be a guest on The Heart of the Matter, uh, just email me at theheartguyspeaks at gmail.com. Our podcast can be found on Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all you have to do is search The Heart Guy and you'll find it. Um, and until next time, this is Dr. Gary Sherman, The Heart Guy, wishing you peace and hope.